So I think you have to, as a leader, keep telling this story and not allow people to forget why we are here and how we all started and how privileged and I would say lucky we are to be in this situation. And then use that as motivation to say, okay, what can we do to maximize the chances of success and try really hard to minimize chances of failure? Some revenue leaders thrive in the chaos of early startup life. They love getting their hands dirty, leading early sales deals, finding product market fit, and establishing a go-to-market foundation. Tushar Makija, founder and CEO of Timahana, is one of those people. Welcome to Grow and Tell, the show where we tell the growth stories of revenue leaders behind successful companies. I'm your host, Alex Krakow. Tushar Makija loves the beginning of the startup journey. After starting his career as a software engineer at VMware, Tushar founded StockEasy, a social community for stock investments. After four years, he joined the founding team at HelpShift, where he was the first sales hire and eventually became the VP of revenue, leading the sales to over $20 million in revenue. Tushar then went back to the beginning again as the first go-to-market hire and eventual VP of sales and success at Airbase. Now he has started once again as the founder and CEO of Timohana. Today, Tushar and I chat about how he went from zero sales experience to VP of revenue in only a few years, what it means to be a sales leader, and why Indian immigrants are so successful in tech leadership positions. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. So I'd love to start with your time at HelpShift, which was sort of your first real sales experience growing a SaaS company from zero. And I'd love to know kind of how did you get that job? Because you sort of made this transition from the founder of a social stock company to being the first sales rep at an early stage company. Can you tell that story? It's actually a very interesting path to get there. So when I was at still at VMware, I was moonlighting and I started my company. And it was with uh, two other co-founders who were basically, we were all three of us by housemates and we went to school together. So we just had a very good uh, rapport. But that company was good to get started in the sense like, hey, are you a founder? Can you build a product? Can you get a few customers going? But it was not going to scale. So I met a few VCs who were like, this is a, hobby it is not a company and it is absolutely not venture back but you know because you were in the i would say in the circle the vcs themselves said well we have another company which is doing something interesting with and this help shift and they're just closing their seed round these guys were like uh, early angel investors and now and i met the founders and uh, we hit it off and the idea was all of us were engineers and then the two founders said well we don't trust anybody. You're an engineer who can, seems like you can talk to other people. And we were building a technical product. It was an SDK that we were selling to game developers. So like, I think you can do this. The person who convinced me to join was the co-founder and CTO of HelpShift is now the co-founder and CTO of Team Ohana as well. So it was his idea. He said to share, you're a shitty engineer, but you can, you can talk technology to people. Let's make you a salesperson. That was his exact words. And that's how I got started. That's amazing. I remember Jack from Lattice once said, you know, it's like, if to be a good founder, a good sales rep, you need to be the one who can communicate from like the nerds to the customers, right? You know, and go back to the engineers and go back and forth. And so, yeah, it's very funny to hear, you know, how that engineering experience, you know, informed your, your sales process. And it was amazing. I was like, uh, I need, I need, I need at least $100,000. I have a mortgage. They're like, okay, fine. And uh, I didn't understand equity at that time. I didn't know. I I had to Google what SaaS was. I I didn't know anything. All I knew was 
hey, I want to do this. I want to be knee deep in startups. Um, I've realized that if I have this unique opportunity to work with our CEO was a great product person, my CTO was great at technology. They were building something very exciting. So just took the leap, couldn't just say no. So I'm happy I did that. And so you went from having like basically zero sales experience to becoming the VP of revenue. And from my understanding, in kind of those early days, you were essentially like a BDR and then you worked your way up and were running deals and then eventually managed the team. Like, how did you figure out how to do all this stuff? How did you figure out sales? How did you figure out how to be a revenue leader? Yeah. What was that learning journey like? I think that it, the learning was, it was a full four year, you know, uni graduation. So the first year, it was just me. The idea was we didn't have a pricing model or anything. And my founder was like, can we get 100 people to use our SDK? And we had a, we got tech crunched. So that just basically got people to sign up on our page and say, I'm interested, I'm interested, right? I said, okay. I was lucky that we had a consultant who was from the, who was a marketing consultant. And he said, Tushar, you need to follow up three times. And he gave me these tips, like at least three times. See if you can find them on LinkedIn. If try and see if they, you know, if somebody is giving a phone number, try and do that. You know, offer them a lunch and learn card or like, you know, even at that time we were offering that, you know, we will come and buy you lunch because it was not like Zoom meeting. We will just come and meet you. And most of our customers were centered around Palo Alto and San Francisco. So I think it was just that early phase was yes, learn how to demo. I think one thing I type of salesperson that who really focuses on the product. So I think the early journey was very simple. Learn the product, learn what resonates with people because I think developers will are really direct with you. They're like, this is shit, it doesn't work. Oh no, this is how it works. I would say that the community also really helped. So we were funded by True Ventures. So Lars Nielsen was always available for office hours. And I was I was a voracious student and I used to go bother him a lot and he was very kind and he always gave he always answered my call. I was reading everything that was available on inbound marketing on HubSpot, like everything. They provided all the tips and tricks and do's and don'ts. And then in the second year of our operation or the second year of my selling, Saster became a thing. So I met a few people at Saster and Matt Cameron became one of the, he built Salesforce, APAC and uh, Amiya teams. He was super smart and again, I befriended him and I kept emailing him, asking him questions. I still ask him questions. So it was read, trial by or learn by fire, learn by doing, and then lean on these certain people who've just been very kind and shared their knowledge. So I think that's how I became a salesperson. No, I was going to say, I mean, that's like the best part about Silicon Valley and just tech in general is I think people are so generous with their time and they're always willing to talk with you and share advice. And like, I think even when I was at Lattice, you know, it's like, all right, just trying to find people a stage or two ahead of me to get a sense of how are they doing it? And so that I can kind of, you know, apply those learnings to myself. And yeah, like, I mean, I just Jason Lumpkin on Twitter or whatever, like all the tweets, all the blog posts and stuff. It is just so phenomenally helpful. Yeah. Oh, Cora too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But she yeah, still seems really big, but no one, I don't know if anyone's actually reading Cora anymore. <laughs> uh, now we just read him on LinkedIn. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, just to add there, I, I think the leadership part was actually really hard because I had managed the engineers before, which was, again, very different. I think a lot of managing salespeople was getting over the 
think that, can I be the salesperson? And even now, this may sound ridiculous. I have not seen a lot of Indian salespeople or sales leaders, right? So my whole team was these six foot five white boys and uh, lacrosse players from all these different universities. And I have never played competitive sports. My competitive sports were getting high grades. I mean, you know, growing up in India is a little different than growing up here. But I think that was the, what is it, imposter syndrome or something? Can I do it? Can I not? And I think my team quickly realized two things. And I'm still in touch with many of them. And they said, you always led by saying, let me do it first and I'll show it to you, rather than saying, go and figure it out. Like if there's a cold call, I made cold calls. I did cold email. I did all the demos, right? Like if I was available, I'm on the demo with you. I think that was the trust that the team said. And then the leadership evolved from there. And I've made a ton of mistakes. I think to become a leader first, you have to be accepted as a leader by the team. And then they let you become better at leadership. So that was a whole journey for four years. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that very much resonates with me. It's like, you first need to be this player coach where you're showing them how to do things. You're, you're rolling up your sleeves. You know, I was at servant leadership, I think is, is the term, yeah. right? You're in the front lines working with people and then you show them how to do it. And then you can sort of become more of a, a manager and a leader. And for me, like management is also de- different than leadership. Like management is telling somebody how to do something. Leadership is like inspiring people to a sort of outcome. And it's an interesting thing. And I'm still trying to figure that out uh, myself. I still say I'm a sucky manager. I am a decent leader. I am a sucky manager. With all these books that are being published, you know, scaling people being the most recent one, they're just telling you some of the best practices. So now I'm diligent with doing my one-on-ones. I write things down. I use a notion page. I'm not just, just remembering things. I think becoming a manager is harder than becoming a leader, at least for me. And uh, I think managerial processes are what makes a good manager and a good team. And I think those are some of the processes that I would say everybody who's not read Scaling People should start reading Scaling People. That's it. You don't have to hear it from me. Yeah, we can put that one in the show notes. And then, um, so I'd love to talk about like the the revenue journey. Because I think when you were at HelpShift, you basically got the company to around 10 million ARR. And from my understanding, it was mainly like big enterprise deals you were, you were working. Is that is that right? Can you paint a picture of how how that all kind of worked in the early days? Yeah, so our first year was just get 100 customers, right? Uh, literally, that was 2011. In 2012, my founder said, hey, I, we have to start thinking about Series A and we need to be a million in AR. And I'm like, okay, all of these 100 people has to give us $10,000. Guess what? <laughs> Nobody gave us, all those 100 people didn't give us $10,000. But because we had some early traction in this gaming vertical, we got introduced to Supercell. And Supercell at that time was building this new game. They were a Zendesk customer and they were like, okay, HelpShift brought in the whole support experience inside the game. So you never left the game. It was not an email. Even the response that you were going to get back from your support team was sent as a push notification. They really liked it. And right in October, they signed a pilot for three months. And I said, I'm going to come to you in early January to see if you would want to sign a deal. I got there early January and they signed a deal and it was a million ARR for one game. And then I literally called my CEO and said, I think we can get a series in. How can we? <laughs> so uh, that was the series A journey. 
Um, and then from there, I think we organically just realized is that the larger the size of the company, I mean, the larger the size of the app, because it was somewhat from a B2B to C model, right? If you don't have a lot of consumers of your app, then you don't have a support problem. Um, and if you're not doing in-app purchases, then again, you don't have a support problem because in-app purchases was one of the best uh, ways. So we quickly realized that all these social apps are out of questions. It's an advertising model. Nobody's going to pay us. So we, we looked at who is selling the most inside the, inside the apps. And it was, we had news companies like Zite, App, Flipboard, Pulse. They all became customers uh, because they had like, they just launched some kind of a subscription tier. And then it was mostly uh, mobile gaming that was huge uh, for us. So second year, we went from one to four. Third year, we went from four to eight. In the fourth year, we actually slowed down and we had our first hit of churn. And that was my first learning that mostly in the third year, all your first year customers are going to be churning or would like to, or want to churn because you've not delivered on their promises and you have literally failed them <laughs> for two years of renewal, making promises. We were supposed to be a 10 million ARR company, but we had 2 million in churn. So we ended up, uh, so bookings was high, but ARR came low. And uh, that's when we got a professional CEO. Then in the next six months, we went from 10 to 18. I think the more rewarding journey was from one to eight because building quotas, setting up territories, segmenting customers, uh, figuring out what is an SMB motion versus what is a mid-market motion, different pricing structures. I think that, in a way, that taught us and made me ready for, you know, Airbase and now Team Ohana, but also made the company ready to tackle that next leap when Linda came in. So when I left the company, we were an 18 million ARR company and it took us four and a half years to get there. Gotcha. And what was it like working with a professional CEO? I think it was like Linda Crawford, right? And she had had a pretty big career before HelpShift at like Cybo and Salesforce. Like, how did she change the company? And were, were you nervous to work with somebody like that? Yes, I was very nervous. I thought, you know, we were running a startup and we didn't have like good processes or sometimes we were yelling in the office and now we were told that you're suddenly going to be buttoned up because Linda is not going to listen to any of this nonsense. Yeah. Like you can't be angry. You can't be like pounding this thing. You can't put the music up, you know, no beer pong starting at 4 PM. So we were, we were suddenly asked to grow up. I think that was one change uh, on a good side. Right. I mean, she helped us become more mature, responsible adults. So after she finished adulting us, I think it was very clear in the sense that she said, you guys are a great technology, but you haven't yet figured out how to, you know, scale the company. So she brought in the, so I think she spent more time fixing the HR function, the marketing function, bringing in some product and sales, like product leadership. She gave me a free reign. She said to Shar we want to get to a 20 million ARR company. Can you take us there? And she gave me that target in a year. I got to 18 and six. And she literally said, there are some things that you do that I don't like, but in the interest of revenue, in the interest of time, I'm going to let you run with your process right now. But realize that at the end of this year, you're either going to up level to match my standards or you're going to be layered or you're going to be out. Those are the three things that are going to happen. 
right? And it was very transparent and it was, she gave me direct feedback. So I think when she laid things out that way, it made me very clear on how, what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. And if you know where your end is going to be, there's no surprises. So every month we were, as we hit our goals, I was telling her that, okay. And then come July, I said, hey, actually June 15th, I was flying to uh, Cary, North Carolina to meet Epic Games. So Epic Games was on a three-month pilot and Fortnite was just going to be ready to be launched on mobile. And they were like, okay, we need help shift in mobile right now. That was a $1.5 million deal. That got signed on June 30th. So June 30th, we were uh, at midnight. It got literally at midnight. It got signed because the CFO had to take a last minute flight out to Hong Kong. When he landed in Hong Kong, he had the doc he signed and he signed it at the airport. And then we were an 18 and a half million dollar company at the, on that day. ARR. I came back and I said, I think Linda, you will get to 20 million without me. Uh, in the next three months, let's, let's find a way for me to transition because I was ready for a new challenge. I didn't see myself growing more because I think, and here is the thing. If I wanted to up-level myself, I actually wanted to say everything that I have learned in the zero to one and the one to 10 journey, how do I do it again at another startup? So I didn't want to do the 20 to 50 journey. I felt, I thought that I would not have enough time to learn the ropes till I've at least done the zero to 10 journey one more time. So that's why I left. Gotcha. And I love how just honest you were with yourself, you know, around like what you wanted out of your career. And like, you know, honestly, I felt the same sort of thing at Lattice. I took last like zero to 50 and it was like, I didn't really, you know, there was, it was appealing to try and do 50 to a hundred, hundred plus, but it's just not quite my personality necessarily. And I wanted to do another crack as a founder, right. And do the zero to one and put those skills to use. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting how different people fit at different stages. And I think it's just so important to just be honest with yourself around what, what you actually enjoy doing, where you add the most value and all that stuff. Yeah. I think that the enjoyment was the most important uh, you know, that building something from the ground up is, I think, was where I was, I found more comfort and more joy, right? So I was like, okay, let's see, whatever we do, that is the next thing that we want to do. But I didn't have anything lined up when I left. I, I literally took six months off. Yeah, that's good. You need, you need a break. And then you went, but then you went back to early stage, right? You were the first sales hire at Airbase. Uh, yeah. Can you talk about getting involved with, with Tejo and, and Airbase and what was it like to kind of build that that sales team from the ground up? You know, back in those days that you might have seen this, that uh, the Drift guys used to walk down streets of Boston and record themselves mm-hmm. on LinkedIn. Shout out Dave Gerhardt. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but so I literally recorded a video walking down University Avenue because that's where I had been given the job offer. In Cooper Cafe, I got the job offer for Helpship. So it was like full circle for me. My first large company account was Flipboard, which is also on University Avenue. It's right in that like blocks. I was like, this is, and also VMware was around there. So I was like, my life surrounds here and I've, I've moved out and I now live in the city. But I was like, let's go back there and walk those streets. So I, I recorded this long 15 minute video and posted on LinkedIn. One of the people who saw that video was Tejo Kote, and he sent me a LinkedIn message. He said, Tushar, how, do you remember me? I'm like, yeah, we, we had some, um, there was an engineer that used to work for Tejo and work for HelpShift. So I'd heard about him in his previous company. And he's like, I'm doing something new. It's a SaaS product. You should check it out. I want to talk to you. So we started talking 
in so we met in August, we met in September, then we met in October. He he closed the round in October. He was debating whether he should take a round or not. And then he said, um, I think there was again a little bit of skepticism that is always there from some of the VCs. Is like he's only done it once. Can he really do it? And I think Tejo's was very clear. At least he told me that he's like he wanted someone who can get their hands dirty. He was not looking for a VP of sales who is going to just come and figure things out. Because one of his first questions was like, when are you going to hire your first people? I'm like, maybe three months, maybe six months. I don't know. Till I become an expert in spend management, there is no reason to hire anybody else. Right? So again, it, it, things moved faster. I closed my first deal was Clearbit and I closed it in the first month of joining uh, Airbase. Uh, so, and we hired our first AE in April. I think it was, again, the founder has to be really clear on what they are looking for in their salesperson or in their sales first sales hire. And the first sales hires usually cannot be only focused on selling. They have to be focused on messaging. They have to be focused. And you have to be ready to get your hands dirty. And I am kind, that kind of person. If actually you restrict me, I'll get annoyed. Like I want to attend product meetings. I want to attend anything that we're doing with marketing. I'm, I want to write sales emails. You know, I want to be part of how the deck is being made because Tejo was using the same VC deck on the, on the sales side. I'm like, I don't think that's going to work, Tejo. And it's like, why? Look how much money I raise. I'm like, sure. But you had to give up equity to get that money, right? These are people you're only giving the product to. Let's change it a bit. Uh, but he was very accommodating. I mean, there are some people who just want to be successful and don't get in their own way. Tejo is one of them. He knows what he wants in life. And he will see like, okay, I need to get this done. If Tushar is helping me, I'm going to support Tushar. If Tushar is not helping me, I'll go find someone else. But I will be successful, right? That's the great spirit that he has. So yeah, that's how I joined um, Airbase. And then spin management is super crowded, right? Like you have Concur who dominates the enterprise and then you know a bunch of these startups, right? Brex and Ramp and Airbase, right? Competing for both startups and then everyone's trying to you know move up market. Like how did you think about establishing the sales motion in such a competitive space? How did you sort of think about those pressures? From the very beginning, there was a very... Uh, it starts with this product vision that Tejo had, right? He said, I want to be the place or Airbase is going to be the place to manage all non-payroll spend, which is a very technical phrase, but it makes a lot of sense to the buyer persona. So it starts from there where he simply says that the vision is card spend, bill payments, and expense reimbursements. Those are the three ways you spend money. I'm going to track and manage all of those three things. So that set the stage on what we want to be. And we actually said Brex is a corporate startup corporate card. Ramp is a corporate card. Ramp came a little later. And we were the only spend management solution per se for the mid-market, right? That was the early understanding. And then we just doubled down on that. We were the only person, I think we were the only company back in 2019 that was talking about spend management. There was a company out in Europe called Spendesk. They were talking about spend management and we were talking about spend management here. I think that was, once we knew what we wanted to be, the credibility part actually started by, we First on Capital has this very good office in the city, um, in San Francisco. And we requested them that on every, once a month, on 
Thursday evening, we will throw a party there. And as part of that party, it will be like, um, it was not really a party, but it's, you know, you have like uh, wine and food in the drinks in the beginning for networking. And then we invited one CFO and we launched this thing called the path to becoming CFO. And I think that was the most important place where everybody who is a controller or a VP of finance or a head of finance, anybody aspiring for CFOs, we got, you know, we had the CFO of Salesforce there, the CFO of Asana, a lot of accomplished names. And when people hung out there, they started listening about us. And then, you know, they will, we are not pushing anything. They'll come and talk to us. Hey, what, what, what do you guys do? You know, in your second meetup, in a third meetup. So in those six months, I think the word around the vision of Airbase really took up. And third thing that we did was we said, we are not a free product. We're going to charge you. So basically any smaller company, we completely removed from the equation. So two contrarian things. This was not free and there was no credit. It was a pre-funded model. That removed the need to compete with a Brex or a Ramp at that free tier completely. So we chose our own tier and then we hyper-focused on, hey, we have the best integration into NetSuite. We have a customizable approval matrix and we've got all of these different features that the others did not have because they were just getting a lot of customers with the high cash pack, but only doing corporate cards. So I think it was a combination of this approach to get the like-minded people together in a room, give them some value and then tell them about what we do and then be hyper-focused on what we are doing, what we are and what we are not. And we simply said, you want credit? We don't have credit. I'm sorry. Let's go away. So I think yeah. that helped a lot. Yeah, it's such a good lesson in there of just being really clear around what your ICP is, building for them, saying no to things that might seem appealing at the time, but just being super focused. And I and like I, I still remember like I live in San Francisco and I remember Airbase had all the billboards around with like controllers on them. And it's like these are like unsung heroes. Like no one has put a controller on a billboard ever, right? Like they're the unsung heroes of of companies and and it's really cool how Airbase kind of like made them a hero and elevated them as a persona and a professional. Um, yeah. Straight out of Benioff's playbook. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it, was straight, it was straight. It's a chapter in Behind the Cloud and how he made the customers as champions, right? You know, sometimes when we speak during podcasts, it seems as if all of this came naturally. There were a lot of failures in the middle. Like I had this huge argument with Tejo once when I said, Brex is offering 2%. I want to give 2%. And he was like, no. If you do 2%, I'm just going to bleed a lot of capital. We're going to set the wrong thing. And I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? So then I, I, I negotiated with him and said, okay, what if we get spend commits from people? If we tell people that only if at the end of the year, if you have spent, say, a million dollars on our cards, we will true you up to 2%. And he was like, okay, get, done, right? So another thing is that founders by by nature and by design are headstrong because they have to be, right? They are trying to create something out of nothing. So they are going to be true to their convictions and beliefs. If you want to join an early stage startup, you cannot be coy or shy and not speak your mind, right? You may get fired sometimes. Your boss may get irritated sometimes. But if it all works out, then it will be a very good journey. I mean, two years, the valuation of the company went from what, 30 million to 600 million. We went from zero to 5 million ARR. That was the pedigree that when I left, 
so I left that series B because it was very, again, the same thing hit me was like, okay, series A was preemptive as a round. We, we didn't re- deserve a series A, but, you know, valuations were skyrocketing. We crossed that hurdle. We went to one to five very quickly. But now, if you are a valued at 600 million, this five to 50 journey is going to be crazy. Like, you know, and we had not figured out, we were not ready for the five to 50 journey. Again, preemptive round, right? VC comes and gives the money. Uh, nobody was asking the hard questions at that point in time they, this, to 2021 that how, what are you going to do with the money and how are you going to grow, right? Uh, because it takes time to figure all of those things out. So again, I was, uh, I took a week off and I went to a, a secluded place just to sit down and think through like what I really wanted to do. And I realized is that this is my opportunity to become an entrepreneur myself and start a company. And this idea of headcount management came from while I was working at Airbase. So I said, okay, now is the time to leave, leave on a high. Teja is not going to screw this up. So my daughter is going to go to school. My equity is going to pay for her. <laughs> so, so I was like, there was some, uh, I know my wife works for Google. She'll pay for my, uh, what's it called? Health insurance. So like, okay, health insurance, check. Future of the baby, check. <laughs> okay, let's go do something on my own. Picked up the phone and called the CTO, uh, my co-founder at HelpShift. And I said, BG, uh, he's like, about time, dude. It took you so many years to come up with an idea. I'm like, I think I have this now. So we spent the next six months talking to CFOs and heads of people, just finalizing the idea. And then in October of 2021, we raised our seed round. Awesome. Right, before, right before shit hit the span. <laughs> yeah, a good, a good time to raise, raise a seed round. And that's when we met, I think, too. Like you were poking around the idea of, of Team Ohana, which is the new company and headcount management. And like, I'd love to hear, like, what has that transition been like? Because it is very different being an early revenue sales leader to a founder. I'm going through that myself. Like, how do you, how do you think about, uh, about that transition? So one quick correction. I think you and I met for the first time uh, on a phone call because we, we hired James Yu as our head of demand. James. Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. So we, we go back much further. Than yeah, that. yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think um, there were two, I, I would say that I felt really comfortable starting the company and finding design partners and doing the early pitches and talking to VCs and talking to potential uh, you know, customers. And because that's exactly what I did at HelpShift and uh, at Airbase. Nobody knew about spend management. Nobody knew about what in-app customer service? What the hell is that? Customer service means Zendesk. Why do we need something else? So I think that muscle had very was built out. What was hard is like I'd never hired in the last decade. I'd never worked with any engineers directly. Right? I would work with product teams. So how do you actually become a good leader to the engineering organization was really hard for me. I don't think any engineer joined this company because of me. They joined because of my co-founder. Right? So allowing my co-founder to find, even though you know, I hold the CEO title, allowing him to have that kind of influence on the company and not just in the boardroom and ownership, but even outside on how we are going to set up our operations. Because the first 10 hires were all engineers. There was nobody. I was the only one in go-to-market and all things that we had to do. So I think that was the hard part. And I think leaning on my co-founder really helped. The other transition was which I still feel I'm still transitioning, is that there is a lot of, I felt that if I made a decision, it'll, it'll go to Tejo and then Tejo is going to either approve or not approve. 
So there is some onus on him as well. Now there is nobody between me and the, this. I, I have no outcome. You get into this meeting, people will say, Tushar, these are the pros and cons. This is how much engineering resources we have. This is how long it is take. How do you prioritize? And at that time, we have to think about all these things. Okay, what should we ship first? What is the highest value to the customer? And sometimes those decisions, I become, I slow them down. They're like, make the decision. I'm like, no, let me go talk to someone else, right? Because you can, sometimes you want to lead with your gut and sometimes you really don't want because you're, you're not sure. So I think that adjustment of making these decisions and trying hard that these decisions are good enough decisions, I can't blame this on anybody else. It's nobody else's fault. It is my fault. I think that is the hardest part and hardest transition still still going on in my head. Yeah, I'm dealing with the same thing. It was such a comfort at Lattice. Like, Jack, all right, Jack, you can, like, I'll just focus yeah. on marketing. You make the hard decisions around financing. And, you know, I can give my advice and my input. But now at Doc, it's like so existential, right? Every little decision from financing to, you know, product stuff to sales, go to market, hiring, it's all on me to figure that out. And I have to live with the right decisions and the wrong decisions. And it's so rewarding when it works out. But, you know, you know, I've made a million wrong product decisions and then I have to deal with that, you know, like delay in, in our in our product or whatever it is. And yeah, it's a it's a funny mental game you play with yourself as a founder. I think now more than ever as a founder, I find it the importance of carving out some me time, the importance of carving out extra time for the family. I think these are the things that I didn't appreciate. But now I'm like. I cannot be walking around irritated. I cannot take the Friday evening and make it my Saturday morning. I have to snap out of it. I'm going to say, you know what? This is the weekend. I have to, I have to take my daughter out to her class to, you know, to meet her friends. I have, I have to take her to the park. I need to focus on that and find happiness there and not be worried all the time. So to compartmentalize and not be a founder for those few hours is the, Hard to do, but a must must do. Otherwise, you'll just burn out. Yeah, no, the compartmentalization is that a word? Uh, yeah, it's so important. It's like you need to like when you're focused on the on work, you need to be on that. But when you're watching TV, you need to be able to be focused on that. And um, I don't know that Bob Iger book he put out, I guess a year, a couple of years ago, has so many good stories of how he's compartmentalizing as like the CEO of Disney when all these crises are going on. But then he has to give a big talk, and I think that is just like what it is to be a CEO and to be. You know the, the person in charge of a company, which is which is you know hard but rewarding in, in a lot of ways too. Yeah, I think it's like uh, I think people who do decide to become entrepreneurs and start companies, and it's like I, I was telling this to my team just on our team meeting last week. As I said, hey, sometimes we hit our goals, sometimes we miss our goals, but let's sit down for a second and realize this: how many people come up with ideas? How many come up people come up with good ideas? How many people come up with ideas that get funded? Okay, let's say you got funded. How many people build a team? We have 22 people around the world now, right? 22 people, uh, so 20 because the two are founders. It's like 20 people have decided to come together to build something. They, that is basically, they believe in this. And I'm like, these are all, you know, the total percentage of success is very, very low. A chance of success is very, very low. But let's enjoy all of these successes we have a band of many 20 people who are working really hard. We've got 20 customers. They buy the product. They have paid for the product, right? And they use the product. You have all the usage metrics on your dashboard. Uh, 
So I think you have to, as a leader, keep telling this story and not allow people to forget why we are here and how we all started and how privileged and I would say lucky we are to be in this situation. And then use that as motivation to say, okay, what can we do to maximize the chances of success and try really hard to minimize chances of failure? That framing, I think, has helped me and is now helping my team also to come to terms with like, hey, how they should be thinking about building the company and how they should be thinking about being an early employee at a startup. I love that. Yeah. Got, got to celebrate the small wins along the way. And it's and, and the journey is actually the the really fun part. So you mentioned like you have 20 paying customers and you started the company like a year ago. How have you mm-hmm. gotten initial traction, especially, I mean, the economy, especially for SaaS is so hard right now. Like how have you kind of established the sales motion? Is Are you doing a bunch of proof of concepts or how does it kind of work in right now? We started like officially selling the product uh, last year, but we were in stealth for like over eight months. In those eight months, we built with a few key design partners and we used the what we learned from those design partners to then advertise to other companies. But our focus has been like building this sales motion is very heavy outbound motion. So I'm, I'm focusing on three things, I would say. Uh, I mean, I give you a lot of credit because I've read your blogs and I've, I've seen how you were doing things at Lattice. I think First, as the founder, you have to be out there and you have to be talking about what you really passionately believe in and why do you think this is going to change the world and why it is better. The second thing is that we, we, my first marketing hire has a very... He, he, I, everybody has this choice. Are you going to go with Dimension? Are you going to go with content? I went with content. Right? Uh, so we've got some part-time resource on the Dimension side, but... I wanted to build our marketing muscle around content. So now we have a podcast, we have a blog, we've got all these resources, downloadable things. And I think that is really helping us become the people who talk about headcount planning, headcount management, right? And because we are the ones talking about it as much, I think that has organic attraction that is coming. So we we do a lot of outbound. That is in my DNA um, because... I've done that a lot in all the companies that I've been. So we, and but in that outbound, we really rather than just asking for meetings, we actually push our content. So the, so it's not just because marketing can't send a cold email to people who have never signed up for anything, but I can send them through my through outreach, right? It's like this. <laughs> so if they do end up downloading, if they do end up subscribing, then marketing gets to retarget them and send them more information. But we are doing this. Um, so it's predominantly been this content and uh, social push and you tapping into my network. I sold the first 200 customers at Airbase. So there are a good chance that my, some of my early customers are coming from Airbase and we reach out to them even now. I think next 2030 will also come from there. And then I would say somebody said this, it was during a Sastad event some seven, eight years back. And uh, there was a sales leader who came on, who came and said, don't stop till everybody knows your name. And that is the motto that outbounding as a team, as a department has to follow. Like, it's like, we won't stop till everybody knows our name. Right. Uh, so we want to be in that position when we do send an email or we do we send a phone call, people pick up and say, Oh, I've heard of Timo Hana. Right. Uh, yes. I've heard of Timo Hana. So 
I think that's the spirit in which we are trying to build our, I would say, sales capacity and also our sales pipeline. So much about SaaS company is just education, right? And just helping people get to an outcome. And if you can be the like central educator for your domain, you win, right? And then eventually they eventually buy, you know, your software to help with that. I'd love to hear from you. Like, why is headcount planning so important? Why did you build a whole company around headcount planning? I think, you know, if you want to boil this down very simply is that people in any company are 80% of your operating expenses. There is no single system today to manage people's spend. Like if you have to just come down to the brass tacks of there is a there is a vendor management software, there is a procurement software, but where is where are you managing your people? So that was my initial thought process. And then that manifests in many different ways. How do you grow your organization? Where would you hire? How many people would you hire? If you think about like whether it's a small company or a large company, organizational growth comes before revenue growth. I have never met, you know, I assume that's what happens, right? As soon as you raise a round of funding, what do you do? You double the account. You say, because I'm going to hire all of these people, I'm going to have more pipeline. I'm going to have better marketing. I'm going to have more features. So if you know that organizational growth comes before revenue growth, we spend a lot of time planning revenue, managing revenue, and then modeling revenue. We don't spend even 10% of that time on actually, if you're a finance person, you're thinking from modeling of a headcount budget. How many people are going to be new? How many people would expect raises? What should be our attrition? That will help you allocate capital better. If you are a people leader, then you want to think about organizational growth. Who will these people report into? Which offices are we going to hire in? Which location is best suited for us? And then the third piece of the puzzle is the actual budget owners and the finance leader, say, I would say the VP of engineering and the VP of sales, they want constant information being fed to them and answer a very simple question. Are we going to meet our hiring goals or not? If you don't meet your hiring goals, all your planned features will not happen. If you don't have the features, what is sales going to sell? If sales can't sell, what are we going to market to, right? So it's all such a chain reaction. So that is why this product is, we have designed from the ground up for collaboration. We have designed from the ground up to bring all of these stakeholders into one system, right? And um, I feel that companies that nail organizational growth are the companies that are going to be super successful. And you will see what happened. We don't have any free money anymore. So you can't just hire and fire. You have to be very deliberate about organizational growth moving forward. And I think the slowdown, or I don't like to use the R word, or whatever this new paradigm we are in, that is more beneficial to a product like us, because we are not about saving money or this. We are. This is about planning, building, growing, right? So I think um, it's opportunistic to yeah. being building headcount management at this time. Yeah. No, I mean, it seems so so timely as everyone's thinking about their biggest expense, which is people. And I think what I love about what you're saying is that. You know, I think headcount planning could seem like a one time a year process, but in reality, it's like this ongoing thing of am I hitting my hiring goals? Where are we at to the plan? And it's usually all locked. I mean, at Lattice, it was all locked in spreadsheet, and I had my spreadsheet, and Josh, our CFO, had his spreadsheet, and then we're reconciling it back and forth. And then, you know, then somebody changes their spreadsheet, you don't even know. And so, yeah, it's amazing to hear just like how ongoing of a process it is. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm very, very excited to get 
dock big enough that I can use uh, Timo Hana. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, we, we already use dock. So you, you, you're building a really cool product. Awesome. So it's, we have already finding a lot of value in that. Awesome. Well, I'm really glad to hear it. I'd love to end on a, a more personal note. Like you're an Indian immigrant. You mentioned that before and you've worked at Airbase and HelpShift, which are, you know, I think both, both yeah. Indian founders, right? And I'd love to hear your perspective on like Indians in the startup ecosystem because, you know, India as a country is obviously growing. There's a huge startup, you know, ecosystem over there, but it's amazing to see how many Indians have risen to the top of technology, right? Satya at Microsoft, Sundar at Google, Shantu at Adobe. Like, I don't know, what's your take on Indians in the world of, of tech? I think Indians in in general, right? I think uh, a lot of us come from scarcity. We don't come from abundance. I grew up in a 450 square foot apartment. Mom, dad, sister, and me, right? By the time my father made money, I I was already shipped out to the U.S. So I didn't even have my own room growing up. So when you grow with that mindset and when you come to the U.S., two things can happen to you because U.S. Is, has abundance. So you can either get enamored by all of these things and then lose track or you take on this, I would say, opportunity and say, hey, we are lucky. We are here. How can we maximize and not just change the trajectory of our life, but change the trajectory of generations to come? I'm not trying to say only Indians do it, but I think Indians and technology really embody this. And uh, you are, you know, we're not, you you never meet Indians, um, you know, marathon runners, or now you have in the city here, because we are all, we're all trying to become that. But, you know, we are not good at that. We are good at that intelligence and technology has been, or, you know, engineering has been part of our early upbringing. You, we take engineering classes as early as eighth grade. If now, now I'm hearing people take engineering classes as early as fifth grade. But, uh, I think that just makes it, given this whole ecosystem, we thrive and uh, allows you to maximize your potential. So I think it is just aligning of the stars and also all your upbringing, right? That if you, what can you do with so many resources and so many opportunities? Do you get overwhelmed or do you capitalize on them and just continue to grow and continue to, you know, generate wealth and generate popularity or create companies, what have you, whatever you want to measure success, right? But I think it starts from there. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Tushar, for a wonderful conversation. If people want to follow up with questions, where, where should they find you? So I'm on LinkedIn. The, uh, I'm fairly active there. You can, uh, so it's Tushar Makija, or just search for Timohana, uh, or I'm at Tushar at Timohana.com. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much. And go to Timohana.com. Go check it out, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. That's a wrap on another episode of Grow & Tell. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform, or find every episode at growandtellshow.com. I'm your host, Alex Krakow. Thank you for listening.